Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Well, let's turn to Psalm 109 this evening. Um, and here in Psalm 109, David prays for a divine deliverance. Um, that is a theme we have seen before here in God's hymnal in the book of Psalms, David praying for God to deliver him from something. Um, so that's nothing new, but what is new is the content of David's prayer here in Psalm 109. Uh, Psalm 109 is one of the imprecatory psalms. It's, it's the last of them in the book of Psalms. That is that genre of psalms where we find David calling down God's judgment on his enemies. And uh, as we have studied all the earlier imprecatory psalms that have this kind of content, um, I think we should bear in mind what the Scottish pastor and uh, theologian Alexander McLaurin wrote uh, as we go through this one. He said Psalm 109 is not only the last one, but it is, uh, he calls it the most severe. Meaning uh, in the earlier imprecatory psalms, maybe we saw a couple of verses or even maybe a, a half or two-thirds of the psalm would be imprecatory in nature and the rest would be uh, somewhat different. This one really from start to finish almost is that way. When we read this together in just a moment, uh, you might find some of David's prayers here a little off-putting. You might think, uh, how can someone who is described as a man after God's own heart how could he pray these kind of things? How could he pen these words? And that's where it gets really, it gets more difficult for us to understand because David alone is not the author of every word that we find here. Who is? God, the Holy Spirit inspired David uh, to record every word of this song for us. So let's start there uh, before we read this, go through it verse by verse. Here in Psalm 109, David most certainly is calling down curses upon his enemies. Um, but I think we need to bear in mind that much like uh, the emotional outbursts of Jeremiah that we find in his book, or Job that we find in that book of the Bible, um, David's imprecatory language here is recorded for uh, our learning, but not necessarily our imitation. Does that make sense? That not everything that's recorded in the Bible it is prescriptive, something that you are to do. Some of it is just descriptive. I mean, obviously, when sins are recorded, we're not to do those things. Uh, and, and so we would never conclude, even in reading this, that David is in sin or that the Holy Spirit is wrong in recording these words and even the emotions that are behind them. But there are a few things to keep in mind before we read this together and study it. Um, first of all, any anger that's expressed here in Psalm 109 would fall under the Bible's description of, of righteous anger. And that is a real thing, isn't it? You can have righteous indignation. Uh, also, David is voicing the cry of innocent blood that God has promised in his word to hear and to respond to. 
Uh, we need to remember that the curses that David does call down in Psalm 109 here, they, they are primarily in the form of prophecies rather than immediate curses. Like David saying, may this happen to you right now. Uh, he's saying, God, in your righteous judgment, you have promised these consequences to individuals who do these things. So, so basically, thy will be done. And there's a difference. There's a big difference between prophesying judgment especially when it's something that God's already said he would do and pronouncing it on someone. And as with all imprecatory psalms um, in any of them that we find, David is not as much motivated by his own pleasure or peace. His main motivation is that God would be praised, that God would be glorified. And in instances like we find described here, God's glory is going to come through David being delivered, and David being delivered necessitates that who he needs deliverance from is going to be dealt with by God. So keeping all of these things in mind, let's read Psalm 109 now and see what God has for us to learn here tonight. It says, Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. They've compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Well, set thou a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he has and let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sins of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing, like as with a garment, so let it come into his bowels like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him, and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. Let this be the reward of my adversaries from the Lord and of them that speak evil against my soul. But do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declineth. I'm tossed up and down as a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth of fatness. I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God, O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, has done it. Let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. Let my adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion, as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn my soul. Let's pray once more.
because to understand this, we definitely need the Holy Spirit's help. Father, we uh, do come to you and ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of your word here to us. This is, uh, this is a difficult passage. Um, to, to see someone that you've described as a man after your own heart and from us who are on this side of Calvary and, and have the example of Jesus, this, this is difficult to understand what it is you want us to learn here, but you do have something for us to learn here. We know that, that all of your word is powerful. It's alive. Uh, we also know that every word that is in your word, God, it's, it's there with a design to uh, keep us on the right way, to show us what that way is, to correct us when we're off. And so we know uh, here in Psalm 109, you have truth for us. There, there's, there's actually much that applies to even us in this age of grace where we are this evening. And uh, so, Lord, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal this truth to us and, and that um, we would leave here changed by your word. That's, that's your will. That's your design. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 1 to 20, this is really the whole thing is David's prayer. But in verses 1 through 20 is where David's prayer has all of this imprecatory language. Uh, when we look at verse 1, David starts his prayer this way. Hold not thy peace, O God, of my praise. Meaning, God, I am praying to you. Uh, I'm praying that you would rise up and act here in this situation. And so here's another thing for us to remember as we go through this psalm. Uh, through prayer, David is committing vengeance unto God. That's important for us to remember because we also need to consider who David is. David is a warrior. Uh, David is a king. And so it is completely within David's physical power and capability to correct himself any of these injustices he is experiencing. But how does he choose to address them? And, and how should we? Yeah, go to God. Ask God. Go, go to the Lord in prayer. Um, we're to commit them to the Lord in prayer, just like David does here. Hey, is God aware of the wrongs that you might experience? Of course he is. Uh, who is more capable of avenging you? You or him? Obviously, it, it's God. Uh, through the Apostle Paul's quote of Deuteronomy 32-35, God tells us in Romans 12-19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So don't avenge yourselves. Give place to wrath. Where's the place that we should give it? To the Lord, <laughs> in prayer. And that's what David does throughout this psalm, starting right off the bat in, in verse 1. And then in verses 2 to 5, David gives us a preview of everything he's been experiencing um, from his enemies. He says, the mouth of the wicked, the mouth of the deceitful, they're opened against me. They lie about me, God. They surround me with words of hatred and they fight against me without a cause. Now that last phrase there in verse 3 is important because it tells us that David has done this self-check, this self-evaluation here to make sure that what he is experiencing is not just the consequences of his own sinful actions. No, his enemies are tearing him apart here without a cause. And that's actually compounded in verses 4 and 5 because David says there, for my love, they are my adversaries. And verse 5, they have rewarded me evil for good. They've rewarded me hatred for my love. So not only has David not been neutral in this situation, he definitely hasn't been wrong. He hasn't sinned against someone and now he's just getting the consequences of that. He's not even been neutral where, you know, he just was kind of ambivalent about the whole situation. He's actually been loving 
to those who are treating him this way. He's been kind to them. And we can connect this to a few real-life events that the Bible records about David. Like, like before he was king, when this guy named Doeg really instigated and motivated Saul, encouraging Saul to hunt David down. Or we could go much later in his life, when David was king, toward the end of his reign, when his own son, Absalom, uh, formed this coup attempt against him. And when David's own father-in-law, Ahithophel, he turned against him. And as David fled out of Jerusalem to safety, there was this guy named Shimei who was literally hurling curses at David the entire way. And please notice what David wrote in verse 4 in response to all this. But I give myself unto prayer. Now, in the King James and the New King James, some of those words are in italics. Um, my, I give myself to, give myself to is in italics. And that's because they're not there in the original language. In the Hebrew, they're not there. Um, they're put there so we can kind of understand what David's saying. But literally, in the Hebrew, David literally says, but I prayer. And I like that. That's a beautiful thing. But I prayer. Meaning I'm all prayer in this situation. I'm going to be characterized by prayer. So many times, you and I, we might want to leave it with the Lord. How many times do we pick it up rather quickly? And here's how to prevent that. But I all prayer. Are you all prayer? Is your response to, to wicked deceitful, lying tongues that, that hurl hatred your way. Is, is your response characterized by prayer? Let's go to verse 6 now, because here's where David's prayer uh, turns imprecatory. He says, set thou a wicked man over him, let Satan stand at his right hand. So David has gone from referring to his enemies in the plural in verses 1 to 5. Now here in verse 6, he refers to them in the singular. Maybe talking about the leader of a larger group, or just referring to them all as one. Set thou a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. Why is this a call for judgment? Because ungodly leadership is a form of judgment, isn't it? That's kind of our reality, honestly, for the last little while here in our nation. Sometimes God allows us to have ungodly leadership as a form of judgment. That's why David prays. Um, and, and honestly, <laughs> We're living in that reality, and that's only going to change when we as a nation turn back to the Lord. Amen? It's in verses 7 to 13 that the imprecatory language, uh, it becomes way more intense, and it may offend our New Testament church age, our, our dispensation of grace perspectives. And I'm just going to pick out a few here. Uh, verse 8, let his days be few, and another take his office. So I think it's clear what David's praying for here, that this individual would be removed from his position of power and authority. Uh, it's interesting, God has Peter quote this in Acts chapter 120 about Judas and the need to find a replacement for Judas. Uh, or how about verse 9? Because that's definitely an increase in intensity. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. So what is David asking for there? Death. Yeah, he may have actually been in verse 8 as well. So, so not just a removal from position, but an end to this individual's life here on the earth. And the imprecations in verses 10 and 12 are just a natural result of that happening. If this person's life is going to come to an end, well, yeah, that, his wife is not going to have anybody to take care of her, uh, neither his children. So I want to pause here and remind us that God had promised that this would occur to people who have done what David's enemies have done. 
Their children will be affected. In Exodus 25 and Exodus 34, 7, God says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren, even to the third and fourth generations. And that's actually repeated in Numbers 14, 18. So that's not some verse pulled out of context. There's three instances in the Old Testament law where God says, if you do this, this is going to happen to you. So David's just really, in a way, quoting Scripture here. Uh, but at the same time, in Ezekiel 18.20, God says this, The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be on himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be on himself. So is God contradicting himself in his word? Is David right to prophesy these things toward his enemies here in Psalm 109? Well, obviously, we know God's word doesn't contradict itself. The principle is there throughout God's word. Your sin is your sin. Your guilt is your guilt before God. But that does not mean that our sin does not affect anyone else, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you and I right now, we are experiencing the consequences of Adam's sin. Pain. Do you have pain today? That's because Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3. Sickness, death. Uh, when Adam and Eve chose to sin, what God promised would happen happened. Um, it, it, in this difficult to read, it's difficult to digest uh, passage, verses 8 to 13, David is just prophesying that what God promised would occur is going to happen. We don't ever sin in, in a vacuum. Our sin and the consequences of our sin, they have painful, drastic effects on others, probably never more so than on our families, those we are closest to. Let's go to verses 14 and 15 now. Because here David prays, let the iniquity of his father be remembered with the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them, let their sins be before the Lord continually so that he might cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now David was going forward in time. God judged even this person's children. Now he's going backward, talking about God judging the sins of this individual's parents. And the only possible way to interpret this that is in line with all other places in God's word is one of two ways. First of all, uh, that his parents, the parents of David's enemy, he, they must not have known the Lord, must not have had a relationship with him. They must never have sought forgiveness of sin through him. And once again, in that case, well, then David is just praying that God would do what he said he would do. Uh, uh, thy will be done, as we're told to pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer even. Uh, the other possibility is one we've already mentioned earlier, and that would be that David might just be venting here. Sometimes we vent, right? Um, much, much like Job, much like Jeremiah. If you read those sections of Scripture, now listen, in Job, it tells us there repeatedly, in everything that Job said, Job said, never once did he sin with his mouth. But Job had a lot of questions, didn't he? Chapter after chapter of God, I, I do not understand this. I don't understand what I'm going through. I mean, real, real deep, deep level questions about God and what he was experiencing. And in um, Job 6.26 
Well, actually, in Job chapter 4 and 5, Job has this friend, right, one of his friends named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz has just gone on a two-chapter tirade about how it's obvious that Job is in sin or there has some hidden sin that Job needed to repent of or none of this stuff would have happened, and, and why don't you just get humble, Job, and what a friend Eliphaz is, right? And, um, and then Job says this in Job 6, 26 to Eliphaz. Uh, he says, do you think you can reprove a man who's desperate like me right now? Don't you understand these are just words for the wind? You understand what Job's saying there? That, that sometimes we, we have deep theological beliefs that might be threatened, um, but not completely shaken or deconstructed. But what we're going through, sometimes what comes out of our mouth might not line up with what we truly believe. And that, that's true of Job and what he was saying there. It's also, I, I think, possibly true of what David is saying. It might be what's going on here. Uh, in verse 16, David describes this enemy as never. He never shows mercy. He, he's someone who prays. It says in verse 16, he prays on and slays the broken in heart. And it's then clear that this enemy of David, he does not know God. He's definitely not reflecting the character of God because who is God? He's merciful, right? He's full. That's what it means, merciful. Full of mercy. Treating the broken heart uh, the way this enemy has is completely contrary to God and how he deals with the brokenhearted. What does God say in Psalm 34, 18? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. In Psalm 51, 17, David says that uh, in his prayer of repentance, David says, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God wants, is us to confess and turn to him in our most desperate needs. And in verses 17 and 19, David explains that this enemy, he loved to pronounce curses on him. In fact, this enemy was so characterized by doing this that it was like the clothes that he wore. So David prays that God would return those curses back onto his enemy. And verse 20 is really just a summary of this whole imprecatory language section. David says this, Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord and of them that speak evil against my soul. And in the way that verse is phrased, we're reminded that everything so far that David has said has been a prayer. Just as he said back in verse 4, David is all prayer. He's giving this matter to the Lord. He's leaving this matter with the Lord. We've already seen it to some degree, but in verses 21 to 26, we see David's posture. Earlier in the song, David made it clear that none of the painful experiences he was enduring were from, uh, from the hand of his enemies. None of them were his fault. Uh, in this situation here, David was innocent. In fact, David had been kind. He had been loving to these individuals who were treating him this way. But in verse 21, David expresses his posture in all of this. And what is utmost in David's concern, and even in this calling down judgment, it's God's glory. Look at verse 21. David says, Do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake. Because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. For thy name's sake. That is David's utmost concern here. In, in justice being judged, in David being delivered, that, that sin would end and God would be glorified. And David further describes this posture in verses 22 to 26. He says, I'm poor and needy. I'm in, meaning I'm entirely dependent on you, God, for this deliverance. 
I have a heart that's wounded. There's emotional effects from everything he's experienced. He feels like his life is ebbing away. He says there, I feel like I'm being tossed about like a locust. He, descri- he describes the physical effects. It's not just emotional. It's not just spiritual. There's physical effects from the treatment of his enemies in verse 24. And so David's desperate cry is found in verse 26. Help me. <laughs> Help me, O Lord my God. Oh, save me according to thy mercy. According to thy mercy. David's saying, God, not because I am righteous, but because based on your promised covenant love, deliver me, save me. And in the final verses of Psalm 109, we see David's purpose in this all. And I hit on this in the introduction as well. Uh, And also when we went through verse 21 just a few minutes ago. But what is David's concern in any of the imprecatory prayers that we find in the Psalms? It's God's glory. That's David's purpose. Remember there in verse 21, David prays everything he has prayed because he is concerned about the name of God. For thy name's sake. That God's glory would no longer be assaulted. It would no longer be stolen by the wickedness of this individual. That God would deal with this person. And then verse 27 begins with an important first word. I want you to look at verse 27. What's the first word there? That. Uh, David says, that. That they may know that this is thy hand. That you have done this, Lord. It is very important for David here that his enemies... And everybody else who was witnessing all of this, that they would recognize this rescue was from God's hand. David didn't want deliverance just for his own sake. He wanted deliverance for the glory of God, that they might know that you did this, God. Charles Spurgeon said this. It's a longer quote, but it's amazing. He says, ungodly men will not see God's hand in anything if they can help it. And when they see good men delivered into their power, they become even more confirmed than ever in their atheism. But God promises us this. In his time, he will arise, and he will so effectually punish their malice, and he will rescue those they unjustly uh, oppress, that even those who don't believe in God, they will be compelled to say, just like the Egyptian magicians back in Exodus, this is the finger of God. That's what David's praying for here. God, do this so you will be glorified. Just like you were back in the Exodus. In verse 27 to 28, David's purpose, even this prayer is so clear, and we have a window into David's heart. He wants God honored in this deliverance. He vows to praise God vocally and publicly in verses 30 and 31. He says, I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I'll praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save them from those that condemn his soul. That's where God is, isn't he? That's where God is. That's why we're to be all prayer when we find ourselves in similar situations like David is experiencing here. And that's why God deserves our praise because he stands with us to save us from those who condemn us, to deliver us. And there's no deliverance that's better than divine deliverance. You know, as we close, it's important for us to remember when we come to imprecatory prayers, um, and this is the last one, so we'll, we'll deal with this. So you and I here tonight, uh, it's important that we remember that we on this side of Calvary, we're never told to pray this way, are we? We're not. Again, remember, this is a record. It's here for our learning. There's a lot we can learn from it. Uh, it's descriptive for sure. 
but I, I would say it's not prescriptive because we don't have anything where Jesus tells us to pray that way. We've got quite a different model prayer from Jesus, don't we? In the Lord's Prayer. We studied that in our Sermon on the Mount study on Sunday nights weeks ago. Uh, but we also studied this passage, Matthew 5, uh, 43 to 48. Jesus said, You have heard that it has been said of old, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them. Now, David did that last part here, didn't he? He prayed for this guy. A little bit different than what Jesus intended, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Um, We on this side of the cross... We who have the full revelation of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, that is something that David did not have. We're called by God to a a good bit more, aren't we? We are. Uh, In Luke 9, uh, 51 to 56, Jesus had sent out his disciples uh, kind of on a mission trip. They were to go into villages. They were to proclaim the gospel, tell people, you know, to place their faith in Jesus. Um, And they were not received by a few of those villages. Their gospel message was not received. Uh, they were not welcomed. They were kicked out. And they returned to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, should we command that fire comes down from heaven and burns them all up, just like Elijah did? Should we do that, Jesus? And what was Christ's response? He turned to them, and he rebuked them. And that's a strong word. It really just means corrected. He turned to them, and he corrected them. And Jesus said, The Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives. He's come to save them. (laughs) Save them. And, and, you know, in obedience to the pattern of prayer Jesus gave us, there is nothing wrong with you and I. There's everything right with you and I praying, Thy will be done, even in situations like we have here. Um, But we who have received the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, we ought to pray that God's will would be done also as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 2.4. Because he tells us there that God will have all men to be saved and come to a full knowledge of the truth. That's also God's will. We get a window into God's heart in Ezekiel 33, 11. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person would turn from his way and live. Repent, God says there. Repent of your evil ways. And our God went to great lengths to make that grace and make the turn that accesses his grace possible, didn't he? He went to great lengths in Jesus and what he's done for us. Uh, From Psalm 109, even we who have been placed in this age of grace while we await Christ's return, we can learn this. First of all, when the wicked come against us, the Christ-like, the God-honoring response is for you and I to do what verse 4 told us to, but I give myself to prayer. But I prayer. (laughs) I'm going to be all prayer. I'm going to give this situation to God and I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it in his capable hands to handle. Secondly, we can learn from this song. In those prayers, our message to God should always be centered on him being glorified, on God being magnified in the deliverance that he's promised us, however that might come to occur. And then lastly, um, I would say, may our prayers imitate those of Jesus as he hung on the cross for our sins. Because what was his prayer there? Our thy will be done, it ought to be coupled with Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a pretty magnifying to God prayer, isn't it? 
magnifying of God's grace. Tommy, praise team, would you come and, and remind us as we sing tonight?